So, <coughs> little story about St. Louis. Well, two stories about St. Louis. Number one is the first time and only time I went there. Uh, the um, a, f- a friend of mine, or the drummer for our band, who has uh, of my old band when I was a teenager, had um, a habit of making strange uh, decisions sometimes. And we've been I, on a three month tour. I but, knew you were going to tell this story. Yeah. Well, I've got two here. I'm just going to. Okay. This one's very quick though. Uh, and and we roll up to St. Louis. And there is a issue in the van where where the guitarist of one band, uh, this guy Josh, uh, he does not want to view the arch. Whereas the rest of us, you know, having arrived six hours before our show, we're like, well, we should go see the arch, right? It's, it's the arch. It's like the it's like the Golden Gate Bridge of St. Louis. Uh, we eventually settle on the arch. We get there. We are outside looking at the arch, uh, realizing that. Maybe there wasn't really a good reason for us to come there. And I turn over and uh and, and Sean the drummer is just pissing all over it. <laughs> Which leads me into what the second thing here is that we went right after that and got a pizza, which uh none of us I think there was seven of us, we couldn't finish altogether. It was the biggest pizza I've ever seen. What? Yeah, there's a pizza place in St. Louis whose name I can't remember, but I'm sure people can look it up. That has a pizza that if two people can eat it, you get 500 bucks. Wait, how big is it? Let me look at. Uh, I'm Googling right now Big Pizza St. Louis. I could eat it. Pointer's Pizza. Let me see how big this fucking pizza is. $500 reward. Click it on there. It I is like, a 20. I like pizza. It is a 28-inch, two-meat, or four-vegetable top pizza that weighs over 10 pounds. 10 pounds? 10 pounds. Okay, I can't eat 10 pounds of pizza. 10 pounds of pizza. We couldn't eat it either. However, I knew these two guys from upstate New York who lived in a tent somewhere up there who were down in Mexico riding the rails. One is like a a, a big, tall, skinny guy. The other is a short, fat guy. They are riding the rails in Mexico. They're fucking, all right, hasta la vista, Mexico. They're rolling back through. Bam, hit St. Louis on their way back to, you know, one of those towns, Rochester, whatever. Uh, and they, they have no money in their pockets. And they, they see this fucking sign for a pizza, $500 reward. <gasps> they they sit, eat the they, pizza? Oh, my God, baby. They sit down. They, are, they order. No one's ever done it with four vegetable toppings before. First of all, veggie pizza, not that great. Were right? they, they're vegetarians, right? Because they're train hoppers. I think one of them's a vegetarian. Uh, and no one, but no one's ever done it to before with the two veggie toppings. Because what do you got there? You got fucking uh, bell peppers? They suck. 10 pounds of bell peppers, that's a lot easier to take down than, you know, 10 pounds of pepperoni. I'd rather swallow 9 grams of lead than fucking 10 pounds of bell peppers. My God, baby. Bell peppers they're, suck shit. No, they're fine. You what have they like ever done bell to peppers? You? Nothing. Yes, pepper- That's the problem. They've done nothing for me. Yeah, they're not offensive. It's a non-offensive thing. It's a bell pepper. It's a who cares? It's a bell pepper. You're yeah, fine. Leave it, it I mean, alone. For Christ's sake, baby, cotton isn't offensive to me. And I'm not going to have cotton on my pizza, right? Bell peppers are like gourds. I don't want to eat a gourd. You don't like gourds? Do you eat gourds? What, like That's a like squash? That's like eating a lamp. Like a squash. Like a gourd, a, like a warty fruit or whatever. Uh, the little warty guy. That's not. 
Okay, did they eat the pizza? They ate the fucking pizza. You gotta eat it in two hours. You can't barf either. If you barf, you forfeit the reward. They ate the fucking pizza. There's literally only like 10, uh, 10 con- couple contestants or whatever have ever defeated this pizza before. They were the first to do it with veggie. 500 bucks, bam, fly home. Ah, uh, amazing. Uh, also, sorry, I'm doing the gun thing again. Gave me all these fireworks the other night. They said they were sick of handing them out to fucking teenagers. <laughs> Literally, these guys gave me about two grand worth of fireworks here. You're joking, but you sent me an image. You got a lot of fireworks. I did get a lot of fireworks. I had, did- a, I had, me and Young Chomsky had a blast on 4th of July. Literally. Literally. I mean, I'll tell you what. I, 4th of July, my favorite holiday. And before... All of you read settlers types get all up in my mentions of my mind about this uh, because I will not interact with you on the internet. Uh, first of all, in San Francisco, Fourth of July is literally only done by Mexican people, and so I was just attending their celebration. They are so good at fireworks in the mission; it's incredible. And so there was no, you know, your uh, America caca flags or whatever it was people just doing a tricks in their fucking cars b setting off homemade bombs and c beautiful fireworks set off without the tube so they exploded street level which was i will say i did slightly catch on fire at one point wait really yeah a little bit but not like it just burned my into my leg oh Um, god but you know like fireworks Mm. how like they shoot them in the sky Mm. Imagine if you just set it off when it was on the ground. Mm, yeah, dangerous. Yeah, but still rocks. <laughs> okay, well, welcome to Truanon. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm Liz. My name is, they call me Mr. Fireworks. <laughs> no, they do not. Okay, it's Brace. And we're joined by producer Young Chomsky. They also call him Mr. Fireworks, but even though Liz won't let me say that. um and you know we have a bit of a different episode uh which maybe was hinted at by our our your opening uh anecdotes Mm -hmm. storytelling hour we um are talking about uh st louis as i Mm -hmm. like to call it st louis missouri and a bizarre um debutante racist uh sorcery ball Yes. At the heart of this this history of the city. Yeah. Basically, um, imagine if the deep state was like fucked up looking. <laughs> well, not just that. And wore like crazy masks. And Well, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hold on. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we have a hell of an interview with a, uh, a local gumshoe about it. And uh, let's just let's put on our masks and uh, and repel rope into Carcosa, baby.
You know, it's funny. Before we started talking to you, um, I thought it was pronounced Street Lewis. I thought it was the <laughs> SD was, was short for street. But boy, boy, do I have pie on my face. Speaking of pie on my face, this is not a very good intro, but I'm, I'm rolling with it. We have with us today, writer from St. Louis, Devin O'Shea, uh, here to talk to us about some freaky deaky shit. It's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> some pretty weird River City shit. Thank you so, for having me on. A, a pleasure. So let's talk about, uh, real quick, a picture that was recently making the rounds, although I feel like it's kind of died out. Um, a pair of... Um, elderly people standing outside their mansion clutching a uh, old style you might call it a vintage AR-15 or M-16 whatever. <laughs> uh, the woman's sweaty porcine paw clutched so tightly around uh, uh, a, a what looks to be a lower caliber, caliber pistol um, screaming in terror and ecstasy at the uh, at the well parade of people walking outside. Yeah, we're of course referring to the pretty famous images that emerged out of the. I think it was just last week. Yeah, the protests in St. Louis. Uh, Mark and Patricia McCloskey, who became internet famous, they memed themselves into infamy, um, protecting their property. It seems mm-hmm. like. Uh, from from some protests in in St. Louis, where you, where you live? Yeah, just down the street from uh, Mark and Patricia. Hi, Mark. Um, <laughs> yeah, they uh, got memed into existence. As you know, that this happens a lot in St. Louis, where we just get into the news for the worst shit. Like uh, a lot of kids get shot, or uh, we top the records of the most violent city in the country. Or you know who knows maybe uh, maybe the veiled prophet will will make the news one day. But yeah, I was about to say right after that, um, a bunch of people started posting pictures of a a man who appeared to be someplace uh, in Carcosa, perhaps wearing a well a veil, uh, gaudy and bejeweled. And mm-hmm. I had actually seen pictures, not of this recently. I knew that this 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 had been a celebration. I don't know if I knew it was in St. Louis, but I had seen pictures of famously of Percy Green in the 70s, uh, sort of leading a protest at one of these things. But the Veiled Prophet Society, and we have brought you here to our sanctum uh, to talk to us about it. Because I think... It's from 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 what I gather and from what you've told us before. This uh, the Veiled Prophet, the story of the Veiled Prophet Society and their ball and their parades is pretty um, inextricably linked with with um, labor and race issues out there in sunny St. Louis. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it's uh, the society basically traces the last hundred years, and if you know anything about St. Louis, you know that like the last hundred years have been all decline. So that, like, St. Louis is a city, a very old city for the United States, um, but really had its high point kind of at, like, the World's Fair around, like, the 1920s <laughs> or 10s. And There's so many Midwestern cities that that's true for. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very also true. Also just Chicago. If only they knew the World's Fair was, like, the last nail in the coffin, and then that was it. Um, 
but yeah, the Veiled Prophet Society, you might say, is uh, like the invisible hand before behind most of the uh, way that the city looks now, which is extremely divided, extremely tense racially, um, and consistently voted sort of the most mismanaged place um, in the Midwest. <laughs> um, that's a that's a that's a. I'm gonna say you got some tough competition there. It's true, yeah, but we excel. We excel here. You guys got to get, I know this family, the Dailies, they really got Chicago into shape. I know a couple of cousins. I can get them. I can set you up with them. Well, let's let's talk about these veiled prophet motherfuckers and uh, and from (laughs) whence they came. So this is, the Veiled Prophet Society, I believe, started in 1878, if unless I am totally misremembering that. And can you kind of set the scene for us of, of how that came to be? Right. I mean, I think that was the first debutante ball and the first parade. So there's two, these two parts of the Veiled Prophet Society in public. And they're a secret parade society. And so this is like an oxymoron because like, if you're having a parade, how secret can it be? But this guy's got a veil on. Um, so in 1878, this is a year after the one of the biggest uh, strikes in U.S. history, mm. which was... You know, it was called the Great um, Railroad Strike of 1877, but that's, an, again, like, historians taking something that was uh, fucking cool and naming it something that was really lame <laughs> and sounds inconsequential. I mean, it was a massive general strike. Oh, yeah. all up, uh, There's a Thomas Pynchon line about this period of American history where he says that, like, the country literally grew to be the size and dimensions of the iron rails rup- running up and down it. And yeah. so, like, the country really is, like, the railroads. Yeah, and from what I get about this, like, this, this, this strike didn't start in St. Louis, but it started, right. I think, somewhere on the East Coast, um, aftermath of the panic of, what, 1873... Right. Um, still sort of echoing through it. And it looks like, uh, or, or from what I remember rather, uh, rail workers' wages were being cut like fucking crazy. And they were being asked to work like two or three, I mean, kind of similar today, asking to ask to work like two or three days a week. A lot of people were fired. And, uh, and strike started and just really spread. Right. And this also predates a ton of labor history, including... One of the things that the strikers talked a lot about is a massacre of coal miners, I think, in North mm-hmm. Carolina that they used as a rallying cry. But I think it was in Pittsburgh that they set fire to their rail depot yeah. and uh, destroyed like miles and miles of just capital sitting on the rails. Um, and then if you think about it sweeping from the East Coast West, when it gets to St. Louis at this time in 1877, you really still are on the periphery of the country. Yeah. Like there, it really is, uh, after St. Louis, it does get more wild. It's still more untamed, but, um, sort of like in that liminal space for St. Louis, like sort of weirder stuff could happen. And I think that's why you had actually, uh, I refer to like Philip Foner. This is Eric Foner, the civil war historian's uncle, who was a great labor historian. Mm. who also got red scared out of his job in a New York university. But um, he writes about St. Louis as sort of the most successful aspect of this giant labor strike in which they, the, it was not only the railroad workers, but a general strike in the city in which white and black workers both struck 
at the same time and literally shut the city down for uh, a little under a week. But they, like, um, it really freaked all the rich people in town out. They were singing the Marseillaise. They were, um, you know, they were carrying the, like, tools of their profession uh, through the streets and waving American flags and basically, uh, yeah, shutting everything down. Um, And this is what's so fascinating because this is the, like, immediate backdrop for this, like, mystical elite society. Right. That, like you know, how it's, where it's born. And it's, it's an important context because this, the veil profit society, or even the, I guess what we'll, we could say, like before the society kind of mm-hmm. comes to be in its uh, like concrete form, the specter of the veiled prophet is sort of conjured right. as a way to, as an attempt to break the strike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and it, yeah, he really, I, this is also contextualized in the fact that this is at the end of the first wave of the Klan terror. Yeah. So this is like post-Civil War night writing, which was, mm. you know, largely a media event of like the papers in the North sort of like watched it with curious awe. And then the papers in the South covered night writing as like, look at these noble people upholding. Mm. The you know. Knights of the South. Right, exactly. So they were heroes. But um, the context for that also is that this is a time when the federal government is trying to crack down on night writing. But so the at St. Louis essentially shuts down for seven days. Uh, all the rich people are freaked out. They have to. The strikers are threatening threatening to shut all the water off to their neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and so every time these people have to, the city fathers leave to go talk in, about negotiations or meet at the Four Courts building. They have to fill their bathtubs and sinks because they're not sure if they're going to get like literally starved out of their mm. houses. <laughs> um, and this is also where Phil Foner makes the argument that because of a re- sugar refinery, having to ask the executive committee, the strike committee, uh, to let it continue operations, Foner makes the argument that this is actually the first de facto commune government set mm. up during the strike for about one day because the owner of the refinery had to go ask permission from the strikers and not the city fathers. Yeah, so the stri- so the, the power there sort of flipped where the strike committee had the power that the government would normally have. Right, and they sent about 100 men to protect the refinery because that became, you know, the people's sugar. It was yeah. not, didn't belong to the refinery owner anymore. So... That's a bright spot. Then the strike is crushed brutally. I think, um, you know, it was the police, uh, an ad hoc militia, the National Guard. The, the great thing about a general strike, though, is that the National Guard is deployed literally everywhere. So it can't be everywhere at once. It's very spread thin. Um, but in sort of the aftershocks of this week, uh, the most recalcitrant aspect of the strike were the trolley workers. Mm-hmm. And the trolley workers in San Luis were just hard-ass motherfuckers who kept being, you know, the thorn in the city father's side. And that's when Alonzo Slayback, our main character here, mm-hmm. comes in, who's one of the city fathers, an ex-Confederate cavalry officer, who runs a steel-cut engraving in the Missouri Republican that is the first depiction of the Veiled Prophet in St. Louis. 
And I mean, you've seen that picture. Yeah, I was gonna say, pause here, listeners, on your little your little cell phone there. Bring <laughs> up a picture. I think just Google probably Veiled Prophet eighteen seventy eight, and you will get a picture. You'll know if it's the right one because it will be a man that looks exactly like a Klansman, um, clutching a gun with a, I believe, another either gun or knife in his belt. Let me bring it up here. Um, He's, allegedly, it's two guns and then like one in the background just in case. Yeah. Oh, just in case, you know, run out of bullets or something. Classic. Right. But it, it's astounding because he looks kind of like a, a Klansman with like a painted face. Mm. Yeah. Like a Lovecraftian horror, it seemed. I think one thing just to mention too is that, like the you 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 mentioned the first wave of the clan, which is very different than kind of the what what is actually the second wave of the clan, which is maybe the more popular understanding of the clan. Whereas this time, they were like heavily involved in. I mean, it's almost in that kind of Masonic tradition Mm -hmm. where it's like very mystical. You know, everyone's a wizard or, a, you know, has all these crazy names that, you know, it's it, it, swords and symbolism. And yeah, it, it's very much not the I, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, the burning crosses and all of that, that comes much later. Pretty much the hoods right. and that that kind of popular uh, image that comes much later. Um, and so there's this. There is this like mystical tradition at the heart of these night riders and in this first iteration of the clan that this image of the veiled prophet is like directly referencing. And, and if I may just interrupt real quick here, that actually so much about sort of the early history of this group reminds me a lot of the Free Corps in mm. Germany in the 20s and their relationship with these sort of mystical, uh, you know, uh, neo-Masonic groups that were basically practicing the same stuff except slightly more Germanized, uh, in some cases extremely similar, where where you have these um, sort of like armed ex-soldiers who are 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 fighting against you know workers standing up for themselves, uh, and they are backed behind the scenes and financially. Basically, by mystical uh, freaks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Actually, this is uh, the historian Elaine Parsons writes about this first wave of the Ku Klux Klan as just Ku Klux, but uh, also that they are participating in a tradition that comes from Central Europe called Sharivari, mm-hmm. which is this tradition where if you don't like somebody in town, you put on crazy garb, you call yourself a moon man, and you go and clang pots and pans outside their house and let them know you're pissed off at them. Or if you're trying to be make more of a point, you like drag them out of their house and kick them out of town. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's like a lot of sort of pan-European naturalist imagery and mm. very strange. These guys, uh, after the Civil War, were also calling themselves the Ghosts of Shiloh, and um, but that still does like beg the question of why, like, why the Veiled Prophet of Khorasan? Like Khorasan is in Iran. It's a mm-hmm. province in Iran, um, and that sort of like that question is also bugged me in doing like initial research because the big uh, problem here is that this veiled prophet is coming to town to shoot striking trolley workers. He said so 
explicitly. I'm, I'm going to, no trolley strike is going to stand in my way. So they're using this veiled prophet as a direct threat to labor. Yeah, it, Just, says, it says something like, because you said that he took out the ad with the, um, with the, with the image of the, the prophet in it. But it right. says something about trolley workers in the ad too, right? Yeah, it's like a direct threat at them. Um, and that is strange because of like the source material that they're drawing from, which if you go even further back in American history, before the Civil War, uh, one of the most popular plays of the time that was a poem and a book of poems is called Lala Rook. It's a little bit of Orientalist literature written by Thomas Moore, the Irish poet. Mm. And one of the poems in this book is called The Veiled Prophet of Coruscant. But um, the problem is that that Veiled Prophet is way, way different than the Veiled Prophet that then develops with the Veiled Prophet Society. Because we so? kind of, well, we kind of like go through the iron fisted Veiled Prophet at the strike, and then later the Veiled Prophet Society in St. Louis wants to turn him into more of a Santa Claus character that shows up once a year to crown his queen of love and peace. And. Uh, <laughs> Uh, have a parade in his honor, and then he flies away on his magic carpet. Um, yeah, so this is this is what's so strange to me about this story, because it's like, okay, you've got this clan character who's deployed in the newspaper as a direct threat to labor, to striking workers, who then becomes basically um, like the most well-known character of St. Louis of the town and like a town symbol that is supposed to be, like you say, this like Santa Claus happy character. We'll get to when this parades start and when the actual society forms where they're, they're kind of doing all these things. Um, but like retains a lot of the bizarre mysticism while also getting into like elite debutante balls and mm -hmm. uh, crazy moneyed circles. It's very. It's just like it, this is such a mind blowing story to me. I I can't I can't even wrap my head around a lot of it. It's yeah. It is very bizarre, and I some of the source material doesn't exactly make it seem any clearer. But like um, in in the original Thomas More poem, this is a very allegorical uh, like didactic poem about a mystical ruler in Coruscant who has developed a cult following where he is going to uh, summon all the riches of Coruscant in order to do endless conquest wars in the Middle East. Mm. And um, he eventually pisses off all of the sultans who are his allies during this like big uh, advanced uh, empire that he forms. Um, and the problem is that he keeps taking all the gains that they get in conquest and spending them on himself and his harem. Um, and so then the sultans turn on him and they come for the veiled prophet. The veiled prophet turns around to his cult and orders them to all kill themselves and rather than be captured. And then the veiled prophet jumps into a dish of fire uh, like the devil. Mm. Huh. Yeah. Just and like so, Santa Claus, a Santa Claus a tale. Classic Santa yeah. Claus story. You know, I may be Jewish, but I am familiar with, you know, general lore here. This does seem to be consistent with the biblical version of Santa Claus. Exactly. <laughs> that is, yeah, exactly. 
And uh, so Thomas More is writing at a time, and Lord Byron is literally telling him, hey, man, if you want to get rid of your writer's block, you got to try this new cool poetry. Uh, it's called <laughs> Orientalism. Mm. And it's like where you take all the things you want to say about the King of England, and you just say that it's about, like, this ruler in Khorasan. You know what I mean? Mm. And so um, that was a big invitation for a lot of artists of the time to do a lot of projection upon the Middle East. And um, the, the one of the stranger parts of this also is that um, Moore got his idea for the Veiled Prophet from a bit of uh, Islamic folklore about a ruler named Al-Makana, who was a chemist and had burned his face during a chemistry experiment. Mm. And so that's why he had to wear, wear a veil. Um, but this is also a little confusing in some of the scholarship because it also could be that Al-Makana was sort of a Zoroastrian slash Islamic blend of a certain number of beliefs mm -hmm. and that he was actually maybe the Prophet Muhammad in sort of like a secondhand disguise because the Prophet Muhammad is often has to be depicted as wearing a veil because you can't depict his face in right. yeah. traditional Islam. So why, so is it clear why Slayback would have uh, used this image or what he found about, or like, is there, was this like really in the popular, like imaginary or was this just, he just happened upon it and was like, that's my dude. I mean, well, I think the first thing to know about Slayback is that after the civil war happens, he's a real son, son of a bitch during the civil war mm. as a terrible campaign and then after it's over, he flees to Mexico with a bunch of Confederate mm -hmm. upper crusts to found the New Virginia colony, which is a uh, new slave colony yeah. in Mexico. Part um, of, yeah, and a lot of people don't know this, but again, much like the Nazis, the fucking, I'm telling you, the Confederates had their eyes on a lot of spots in South America where they could yeah, have exactly. these little, they in fact do, I, to this day, there is a Confederate colony. I can't remember what country if it, it's in, if it's in Colombia or Brazil, but there is a colony of, of Confederate um, uh, descendants living in South America. Oh, that's so bizarre. I mean... Slayback spent a while there, um, but he was he was there to write poetry because that's essentially what he was. He like he, they published all of his poems after his death. Uh, they're all really bad. They suck. Yeah, a I read a few of them leading up to this. They are not good. Oh yeah, really bad. All about the lost cause and how great it was, or mm. like oh I miss my sweetie. Like whatever, dude. Shouldn't have gone to Mexico to have slaves. <laughs> you could exactly. easily be with your sweetie if you weren't like, I'm gonna go fucking south of the border to the slave colony. He had to be bribed back into the country by his mother, also with like a hundred dollar bill. Oh, because that's he so was very, pathetic. Very, <laughs> very pathetic. He and he like reserved the right to flee again if they were gonna like put him up against the wall. So like, what I don't know. Is this guy like, Greek? How is he such a mama's boy? <laughs> true but so in 1868 this is three years after the civil war in new orleans the mystic crew of comus which is a another secret parade society holds a parade that is called the departure of lala rook from delhi and this is a parade that each one of the floats is a different one of the poems in the Thomas More book of mm. poetry. Mm -hmm. And so that's likely where Slayback saw the Veiled Prophet for the first time. Um, but the other 
bit of context there is that if you're standing in the French Quarter and you're looking at that parade and you're looking at the Veiled Prophet, you're definitely not seeing um, a allegory for like English colonialism or anything that Thomas More is thinking about. You're definitely seeing like a Ku Kluxer right, who right, right. is from the newspapers that you've you know are hyper aware of. Mm-hmm. So Thomas or Slayback comes back, gets pardoned, uh, becomes a lawyer in Missouri, uses his connections in the Mystic Crew to form the sort of like network, old boys network between St. Louis and New Orleans. Lots of river barges of the day. Uh, that's a great way to make money. And he is extremely freaked out by the general strike in 1877, as are all these other guys. And so running that ad in the newspaper is the first step towards saying, okay, we're all going to get on the same page as the city fathers and the economic interests Mm. in this region, and we're going to form our own club. And it's going to be called the Veiled Prophet Society, and we are going to have our own rituals and exclusive membership, and we're going to do these parades, and we're going to have this as our symbol, which is a Klansman, but it's a Klansman with enough... One of the problems here, if you're Alonzo Slayback, is that the Third Enforcement Act has just gone into effect, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that forbade, essentially forbade night riding by forbidding you from covering your head. Uh, so like you couldn't cover your head at all in public. Oh, like the um, they they have those still. Like there's mask laws and stuff that they'll enforce around right. protests. And a lot of that does just come from a direct result of trying to fight the Klan at various yeah. points. I should <laughs> note too that the uh, the Weimar government also outlawed uh, non actual military military uniforms in a sort of attempt to uh, mm. stamp out the SA. That's yeah. That's very strange. All the Boogaloo boys yeah. have yeah. their Well, that's where they got the Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it's, you know, it's like the... That's what's so, fa- you know, what's so fascinating about the story is that, you know, um, Veiled Prophet emerges as this sort of reconstituted elite, um, at, you know, as a kind of disciplinary tool against striking workers who were, you know, by the way, striking together black and white, which is really what what scares the shit out of capitalists, by the way. Absolutely. That was a huge... Um, to have all of the wharf workers who were black join with the slightly better-paying railroad workers who were mostly mm. white, that was a big act of solidarity that did not come easily and was one of the reasons that the strike broke up probably prematurely is that there were some white striking union men who turned away hundreds and hundreds of black Mm. strikers just because, you know, they wanted to splinter the movement basically. Yeah. And it's, I I should note too, that there were two, I mean, cause unions looked very different back then, but there Mm. was two main groups that seemed to be involved with the strikes, the Knights of labor, who I think a lot of people know about sort of like the precursor to a lot of what we have today. Uh, and then uh, the Working Men's Party, which I wasn't too familiar with, but I guess Albert Parsons was at, at some point a part of it, uh, who eventually became, I think, part of the Socialist Labor Party, which still exists today uh, out of Mountain View. 
which is, uh, I think, probably where their sole member lives. Uh, <laughs> his name is uh, Sergey Brin. Oh, boy. Well, so we've danced around it a little bit, but let's get into like exactly what this secret society starts doing because um, the rituals that they perform and the kind of annual pageant, aside from the parade that they do, is, I don't know how else to put this, like really fucking weird. Yeah. So like, how did all this start? Like when, when was the first event of the Veiled Prophet Society? Like what did they, what, what did they launch into? Right. Well, the first thing is the parade. And uh, Thomas Spencer is the academic who wrote about the Veiled Prophet Society as a parade society because he was sort of studying how parades are like propaganda tools of this time, 1880s, 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- in 1878 is the first parade in which the Veiled Prophet is the centerpiece of the parade and he's standing up on a float with a executioner and a bloody butcher's block. So, like, sending a very clear message, and also they're not going down, like, Main Street. They're in the worker districts. And so Mm. these parades are very much like, you know, if uh, your local police department decided to drive the tank down your road, you know? Right, right, right. And so from there, they lighten up and soften up and these parades become more about didactic ways of teaching these upstart immigrant classes, many of which have picked up communist ideas overseas and brought them here. We're sure of it. Um, And so the parades become this way of like teaching American history or literature or like the, um, you know, the founding values of the country as they progress. But Alonzo Slayback isn't around for much of that because he gets into some kind of dispute with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch editor, John Cockreel, and there's some shady stuff that happens, but Alonzo goes to the newspaper office late one night in, like, 1883 and uh, ends up shot dead. Um, And that's the end of Alonzo. I will be honest. I I wish other journalists had such gumption. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh it it was hard to figure out from that period what was really going on because it really involved a lot of newspaper people and mm-hmm. alonzo was very involved in the missouri republican but anyway newspapers will come up again so the veiled prophet society as a boys club is sort of just this parallel political structure to any kind of democracy that might uh, work its way into the city where all the business leaders, all the guys who are selling farm equipment, working the barges, getting rich on the railroad, getting rich on the highways that are starting to come mm. in as we move through the decades, sort of the the structure of the city grows and um, the Veiled Prophets every year put on this debutante ball um, in which they elect one of the daughters of the society, the Queen of Love and Peace, and there's like a hundred debutantes in every debutante ball, and they parade in front of all the blue bloods in one of the ritzy hotel rooms or in one of the public arenas of the early times. 
and um, they kiss the feet of the veiled prophet, who is literally sitting on a gold throne at the Wait, front of the stage. They, these women actually bend down and kiss the feet of a veiled man in a gold throne. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they huh. they literally bend and like worship him. Yeah, he's also uh, like wearing gloves and like a hat and like a whole thing. Like it is a fucking freaky costume. It's it's like unnerving to look at. He has like a Hermes helmet that he wears also and like the 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 veil is very lacy and a little transparent and sometimes mm-hmm. he wears another mask underneath that. And he like, also has like a case. scepter. Right, just in case you like noticed a freckle or something. So like through um just to like pause for a second on the history, like through the decades, like we we never really find out who the veil prophet every year is right. It's always kept a secret. It's still kept a secret. Presumably somewhere in the city, there is a list of all the veiled prophets. We just don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. Mm. But, but you, you were saying that, you know, you can kind of guess maybe who some of these people might be based on some of the, the, the Queens that are named, right? Right, because we do have a complete list of all the queens. Mm. Oh, I and have so, a complete like, list of queens, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, And let me yeah, tell okay. you, the girl, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the girl listening the to girl this. The girl listening to this, you are on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but um, yeah. there's some big names on this list, right? Right. Um, the first one is Susie Slayback, so we can guess okay. whose daughter well, that there was. We go. Okay, all right, that makes, I get that. Uh, but yeah. wait, wasn't the first prophet himself, though, Oh, we can talk about that in a second, but the f- right. uh, the first John prophet, Priest. yeah, the police commissioner, right, who broke the right. strike, who is sort of the only first, like I guess they didn't have the whole plan hammered out on the first year, and they mm-hmm. like like and there's John Priest, the police commissioner, as the anonymous veiled prophet, <laughs> or oh. or they wanted you to know that like yeah, the police yeah. commissioner is going to parade through your working class neighborhood and yeah, you know, boss mm-hmm. you around. Sorry, let's get back to this list of names, which, by the way, I have many lists of names open on my desktop right now. It has taken me a while to click through. New Republic? No, that's not it. Yeah, it's quite... I mean, if you live in St. Louis, it's even more eerie because, um, for example, the Schnooks are very familiar because they own all the grocery stores. The Schnooks? The Schnooks. Because I mean, I'm honored that there's another Jewish person being mentioned here, I assume, but the right. schnooks? The schnooks. That's, that's normal for us. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> so, wait, I'm sorry. I, I'm trying not to laugh, but the schnooks. So that's a big, you're saying that's a big grocery magnet. It's Yeah, it would be the same as like Jewel Osco or, uh, I don't know, I've never lived outside of the Midwest. But yeah, the schnooks are very identifiable. Um Shoto uh, is a family that was supposedly the founders of St. Louis. Mm. Um, as you as you go through here, I think we've looked at it before, and that all these names sort of repeat over and over again. There's the Bushes of August Bush, August, mm. or, you know, the Bush family, the Anheuser Bush family, who basically ran the town after 1933, all the way up until the InBev merger. The Walshes are very well known to be a rich family around here. Um, so it's really like the elite elite of the city. Like, right. And, 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 and the people that pretty much like 
run all like pretty much all the business as well. Right. Like Washington University is the biggest, most ritzy university in town. And their campus is called the Danforth campus. And in 1947, Dorothy Danforth was the queen of love and peace. Uh. Yeah. And, you know, there's also uh, the Kempers, which are very well known in WashU also for having donated a giant uh, art museum there, which I very much appreciate. But this is also uh, the same family as Ellie Kemper, who is Erin from The Office, because she was queen of love and peace in 1999. So to repeat that, the uh, show that you watch with your girlfriend, The Office, has a starring in it a member of the Veiled Prophet Society. Well, at least a a I don't know. I, I, I through this I've been it's been hard to tell like how much of this is driven by women because it seems much of it is driven by a small group of men. So right. at least an auxiliary to the Veiled Prophet Society. Yeah, I think there's also a contingent of the women and the queens who have wanted to continue the debutante ball, especially. Mm -hmm. Not because they like the Veiled Prophet, but because they like the debutante ball, because it's fun to dress up. Yeah, yeah. And, like, more power to them, but I get into this problem with the Veiled Prophet Society constantly, which is, like, you could just have the debutante ball and get rid of the guy. Like, get rid of the clown. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the kissing the feet of the guy in the gold throne, yeah. I think that's a little weird. What do you gotta do that for? Like, but that seems to be like a real central part of it, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that the guys get off on the costume and with, we haven't mentioned them yet, but another part of the Debbie Down Ball is the uh, like Bengal Lancers, mm -hmm. who are sort of like the paramilitary um, guys around the Veiled Prophet who protect him and dress up in turbans and. Uh, it's very strange. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I assume that they're based on the actual Bengal Lancers, except these seem to be like 30-year-old white guys with beards pasted on, uh, right. sometimes rather poorly. And I think also, isn't that like the Lancerati, who are like the fascist cavalry troop? Aren't they like sort of related to that also? Ooh, I don't know. I've got to look that up after this. I'm always um, interested in a fascist cavalry, cavalry troop. Who's not? I mean, yeah. Uh, it's the boots. But uh, so, so we've got this thing starting in the, the late 1800s, and it really takes off at first, right? Yes. It's, it's, very, um, it's a really good political tool, because especially in this era in like the 1870s to around the 1920s, I mean, debutante balls are ways of securing your wealth within a very narrow set of options for who your daughter is going to marry. Right. Yeah. Like it's really about keeping the blue blood circulating in just like four or five families. And they're very effective at that. Um, as you can see from just like the returning names on the roster and sort of the entrenched wealth. Yeah. That is the th amazing thing about this roster of names, which you can find just like on their Wikipedia page is the same groups of names repeat themselves like every 15 years as one generation takes the place of the next. Mm. It's very strange. The, another, another big one is uh, the Schlafleys, which include mm. Philip Schlaf or Phyllis Schlafly and also uh, the Schlafly Beer Company here. Right. Um, yep. Famous... Uh... Bitch. Yeah, famous <laughs> enemy of all women and possibly people. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I think that's that's so, so I mean that's like an important thing to pass on too because um, as we kind of mentioned at the top of the show and, and what will continue to be part of this story is that St. Louis remains one of the most segregated cities in America and like this society is at the heart of that of of stopping any kind of development you know, like you say, it's this like right. re-entrenching of elite and blue bud. I mean, that so that neighborhood that, you know, the McCloskeys are in is like a gated. I mean, it's like in the center of the town. Right. And it's like yeah. a and it's like a, you know, a gated, very wealthy community. And right across the street from their house is the hall where they would hold these. Yeah. These I mean, balls. Right across the street is the Chase Park Plaza, which is a beautiful Art Deco 1950s hotel in which they named the ballroom um, the Coruscant Ballroom. And that's where they would have... So all of those the neighborhoods that the McCloskeys live in is um, in the shadow of that hotel. And there's another set of neighborhoods even further down. Like, they keep going. Mm. And a lot of the Veiled Prophet people all lived in these giant mansions mm. and because uh, all all the houses are around there are about a hundred years old uh built to impress people during the world's fair basically yeah. and, and then they put up the gates so that no one can see them oh they're it's actually gated yeah actually gated okay sometimes people there's a whole like controversy a around opening the gate and what happened during the protests but for the most part doesn't matter yeah i mean like Liz was kind of hinting at this there, like St. Louis is incredibly segregated, right? Right. So if you turn the other way, not facing the hotel, two blocks north of the McCloskey's house is uh, something that like economists and like uh, journalists at the BBC have termed the Del Mar Divide. Mm, yeah. Which the BBC came out and did like a whole expo about it a couple of years ago, but it is one of the largest economic shelves in the country. Mm-hmm. Meaning on one side of the street, there's these billion or million dollar houses and all this very um, stable property at high prices. And on the other side of the street are a lot of uh, is buildings that are so worthless that, Tearing them down and palletizing the bricks and selling the bricks is more valuable than repairing the building itself. So, like, it's a very much a Detroit situation. I was about to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, like, the um, the life expectancy of someone born on the north side of the Del Mar Divide is actually 15 years younger than their counterpart on the south side. And these are literally streets apart, like. You can drive from the McCloskeys to the heart of one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in the Midwest within ten minutes. Um, yeah, and it's really astounding. The Vale Prophet. I mean, the Vale Prophet um, kind of like reemerges in this, you know, in this story of fighting segregation through the twentieth century. Um, you know with the emergence of the civil rights movement and, and, and action around that in the late sixties and early seventies where, um, you know, I mean, it's quite a big, big moment where, um, I mean, maybe we we could just go into it, I guess, uh, action, the civil rights organization disrupts one of the Vail Prophet society meetings. 
Right. This is in uh, 1973. Is like sort of the big apex of, you know, uh, about a half a decade of action protests. And um, action actually... The main character in action, or one of the main characters, is Percy Green. It was mm. it's a very um, egalitarian organization. They were a guerrilla theater group, mm-hmm. so that they were very focused on like media imagery and how to create an image that would get on TV that would go to the suburbs. Yeah, I was reading that he climbed the St. Louis Arch when it was under construction. Uh, I think with another guy to basically draw attention to the fact that they had not been hiring black workers. There was no black yeah. workers working on it. Exactly. They, he wrote hire black workers on his back in order to climb the arch, and uh, the post dispatch conveniently never ran a picture that showed the message on his back. Uh, it's just another one of my, you know, a little little bit of ire I still hold about that one. But like, yeah, the and Percy got his start actually fighting against McDonnell Douglas, where mm. he was working on the line at McDonnell Douglas when the, you know. When they basically came in and just cut all of the black workers all at yeah. once off the payroll. McDonald so Douglas he, is what is now what we would call Boeing. It turned into Boeing, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Manufacturing bombs and jets, all yeah. the same stuff. Um, and so he got his start there. And actually, the result of that strike led to a Supreme Court case, which ruled in favor of Percy Green and the black workers at McDonald Douglas. A very important piece of legislation. Yeah, I mean, that sealed him in the annals of history, but also while all this protesting was going on, that was still working its way up in the courts. Mm. And Percy Green developed a very long Pro record during yeah. this time. <laughs> One can imagine, yes. Right. Um, and so they would, action being like a guerrilla theater group, would hold these protests against the Veiled Prophets because what they essentially wanted was, you know, just like the arch strike, they wanted the white CEOs in the city to hire more black workers because factories were leaving the north side where the city had already ghettoized most of the black population and they were the only new stuff was going in in West County where all the white people fled out of the city. And so what better way to protest all these guys than at the secret quote unquote, you know, meetings they have once a year. And so Percy Green in action would put on rival Veiled Prophet pageants, like uh, having the Black um, the black Veiled Prophet and the Queen of Human Justice. Yeah, and there's, there's some pretty cool pictures of that. Yeah, they're really great. And their demands were to be sat right next to the White Veiled Prophet and the White Queen. Yeah, and to be clear, of- the Veiled Prophet Society had zero black and I think zero Jewish members until the 80s. Not... Oh, for sure. That, you know, my biggest priority is getting, um, you know, the Jews into the deep state. You know, we, we, we have enough problems on our hands. But, but super, like, not, I mean, especially considering how many black people there are in St. Louis, it, clearly very intentional. Right, exactly. Very much a waspy, um, yeah. insular thing, which, you know, we can talk about with William Webster also in a minute. But, um the apex of all the action protests, they would do other things like hold up the 4th of July parade and handcuff themselves to the car and be dressed up as a doctor and a patient and the patient would be society and the doctor would be justice and he'd revive him. And it was very, you know, on the nose, but it it was very, uh, it was genius because of, 
you know, the media landscape of the time of mm-hmm. like, you can protest. I mean, there's a lot to say about protesting in the street and just clogging intersections, but action really understood that like you need to create a, a dynamic image mm-hmm. in order for people to a see. spectacle. Yeah. A spectacle. Exactly. Yeah. I was, I was also listening to that podcast blinders off, which is like a St. Louis podcast earlier about veil profit. And they said that uh, around this time, independent of action, people had just like begun just throwing things at the parade sometimes too. Like people who didn't like the parade or whatever would like get on the roofs and, and shoot slingshots at them. That's that's praxis. I yeah, mean. And, well, and it got to the point where the parade, like people walking the parade would wear body armor and not like full on Kevlar or whatever, but like, you know, something underneath right. their costumes. And that is what led to them bringing women and children on the float. Because uh, mm. no one's going to throw a brick at, at clever, children, clever, clever human shields. Bomb it anyways. <laughs> hey, sorry. <laughs> so this kind of reaches. I do this not reaches, do that. Yeah. <laughs> this reaches an apex in 1973. Can right. you can you um, tell us about this big event that? Uh, you know, as you mentioned, your problem with the media landscape and journalists is curiously not com- is curiously like pretty much not covered at all in the media. Right. Uh, so in 1973, the Veiled Prophet Society was using the Keel Center, which is a publicly funded organization, uh, um, you know, amphitheater with a big balcony up top and a big sort of organizing stage at one end and a lot of chairs and tables and stuff in the middle. And so Action got three tickets to the Veiled Prophet Parade, and they smuggled these three white debutantes in. And they went up to the balcony, and in the middle of the ceremony, as all the debutantes are marching down the center aisle to kiss the feet of the Veiled Prophet, um, two of the debutantes start throwing leaflets from the balcony and screaming, down with the VP. And then this third debutante... Jenna Scott grabs a power cord that is hanging from the ceiling and like rapples Tarzan style across the amphitheater, landing on the stage steps and fracturing her rib and creating this just the scene of like absolute chaos. And uh, she is unfazed by the rib fracture and charges up to the veiled prophet and rips off his veil and crown. And so... And we know that there's cameras all over the place because they're taking pictures of all the debutantes. We know that there's uh, pictures that survived because there's a picture of the Veiled Prophet having put his veil back on after a little bit of struggling. But somehow the picture of the guy never makes it out of that event. Mm. And the guy is Tom K. Smith, who was the vice president of Monsanto Corporation, which is headquartered in St. Louis, and at the time was dumping a lot of Agent Orange on Vietnam. This yeah. was 1973? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right in the heart of it. But to be clear, Agent Orange kill, has killed over, like, I think half a million people. Right. And has ruined the lives of, like, you know, probably several times that number. Um, I mean, this guy is, you know, I, I'll stop making these soons, but, you know, a little allegory to the Nazis here. I mean, this motherfucker, this is like working at Auschwitz or something. Like, these, they, they make death. Yeah, directly capable or culpable for just, yeah, deserves no um, sympathy. 
especially in the way that like the Failed Prophet Society and the rest of St. Louis media closed ranks around him immediately and kept his name out of the newspapers, but for one heroic publication called the St. Louis Journalism Review, which published his name, and that's kind of the only reason that we know for sure that's what happened that year, mm-hmm. Be- besides like hearsay, basically. And Gina Scott's car was bombed, too, after that, right? Right. Um, she was. This wasn't the first time the Veiled Prophet Society had tried to drive uh, a woman out of town, but um, yeah, there was clear retribution. Um, you can only imagine at this time, also with Quintel Pro and the paranoia mm. of the '60s, and the fact that one of the most powerful Veiled Prophets is a guy named William Webster, who at the time was either in charge of the FBI or in charge of the CIA. And he then went on to be in charge of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. Um, under so, W. Bush? Under W. Bush. Jesus right. Christ. A These people are too career. old. It's like, you know, they got a retirement age for federal employees at 55. That's what I say. <laughs> Can't be around for that long. <laughs> yeah, it's... There's also, uh, there's some, ten- uh, so after the Jenna Scott incident, uh, the Veiled Prophet Society is forced out of public view. They mm-hmm. concede eventually that they c- can't hold their stuff in the publicly funded Keel Center. They have to move into these private ballrooms. Um, and then in the 80s, we know this because William Webster's working his way up sort of the, um, the national security ladder that in his Senate transcript, he and some other guy, senators are having a conversation about his involvement in something called the Noonday Society, the Veiled Prophet Society, and the West County Country Club, which are all all white, no Jewish members, no female members. Mm. Um, and some of the senators are gently rib- ribbing Mr. Webster about it. Um, and he says, no, it's Strom like... Thurman too, right? Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Um, so the senators are, like, ribbing him about it, but then they sort of, like, stop talking about it because another senator turns out to be in one of the secret clubs also who's, like, supposedly vetting William Webster, oh, and they God. kind of just, like, laugh it all off and move on. Which, But after that Senate hearing, the... Failed Prophet Society did uh, let three black doctors into the organization and solved racism. So yeah, absolutely. That was nice. Um, yeah. And since then, they've also just had a number of you know um, self-inflicted wounds. Where in like 1981, they had the VP Fair, mm-hmm. which was downtown, and they closed the bridges to East St. Louis because all of the black people live on in East St. Louis. And they didn't want them walking across the bridge into the fair. Wait, they what was what was the ostensible reason? Um, they kind of just shrugged and were like, you know, bridge is closed. Like incredible, it's, it's over. And then the newspapers picked up on it and sort of kept kept at them about it, and it became a big scandal. So, a classic um, Bridgegate incident. Really, it was. I you mean, really, I'll tell you what, guys. If you are in charge of a city, you don't want a bridge gate. People don't like a bridge gate. All no, history, no hitherto, is the history of different bridge gates. Absolutely. That's what I'm always saying. 
Yeah, so this, this organization seems like it's been on sort of a, a decline in some ways, right? Yeah, I mean, with like a lot of Rust Belt, Rust Belt cities, uh, in the 80s, when you have corporatization, like a lot of companies where the CEOs would have been Veiled Profit members, those companies got bought up and their headquarters got relocated to New York or to mm. like... Anheuser-Busch gets bought up by InBev. There's no reason to have a corporate office in St. Louis anymore. You wipe out a giant executive class, basically, locally. A yeah. bunch of money leaves town. Yeah, that's an interesting twist in this story. I mean, just through history here with the Midwest is that, you know, capital flight beginning in, like you say, the early 80s and really, like, I mean, up until this day, but, I mean, it's pretty much all... I mean, certainly in rural areas and then in larger Midwestern cities, um, you know, has totally gutted these towns um, in, in ways that even show up in these like secret societies where now, you know, we were talking that, you know, you start to see kind of less VPs. You're not seeing Monsanto in there. You're not seeing these like ruling class you know, maniacs, but you're seeing these kind of local petty bourgeois members, or you're seeing, you know, you get, you have the police chiefs or you have the, the local business owners or things like that, which presents its own kind of concerns in a lot of ways as well. Right. Exactly. And like, you know, some of those people are worse in some ways mm. than the predecessors, mm -hmm. but also they just don't fully comprehend that, like, your Veiled Profit counterpart in 1955 would have looked down on the sort of people who are led into the society now as just, you know, absolute trash. I can't, yeah. you know, identify with those people. So, like, you have to... The elitism sort of is also... I don't know. It just doesn't get to these people. And also, you know, another thing about St. Louis right now is that we have a uh, billionaire psychopath uh, libertarian named Rex Singfeld who made all his money in, like, financial bullshit, um, trying to privatize literally everything in the city, including the airport, the water, uh he would privatize the roads, I'm sure, if he had the chance. Ugh, I love that. I love the libertarians privatizing the roads. They love it. They want to Sam Brown back literally the entire center <laughs> of the country. Yeah. Ugh. And so the Veiled Prophets are acting sort of as like the landed gentry still, and they get in Rex's way, and they have like a definite reason to not go through with these privatization efforts. But basically all of the lo local politics then boils down to like, you know, uh, the petty bourgeois versus this psychopath individual and like who wins is just like who sort of like, I don't know, gets to say what goes between them and not yeah. really anybody else. Very dialectical. Yeah. It's, it's a little depressing, but to live here and pay attention to local politics. So are, are they still doing this ball? Are they still doing the, the parade or what's going on oh, yeah. now? I mean, this is the other thing is that, like, this, this thing will not die. This thing from the past just staggers on. Um, they are, have a veiled profit. They, I wanted to write an article about them and, like, get into the ball and, like, see what, you know, witness it firsthand. And they wanted me to, like, cover their charity work. They're, like, a charity organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah, right? Always. And so, like... 
I don't know. I don't think anybody's really buying that one. They've had to remove VP from the VP fair, and now it's just called Saint Fair St. Louis. So, like, they are getting slowly sort of pushed out of, further and further out of public view. But it still happens. I mean, in the year that Michael Brown happened, um, you know, with the North Side literally having militarized police waltzing through the neighborhoods and tear gas in the air, yeah. the Veiled Prophet Society had the ball and literally crowned one of their daughters the queen of love and peace. I mean, it just, there's something about St. Louis that is like, there is no subtlety here. It's yeah. just like a very stark place. It's a very beautiful place, but yeah. it's very stark. I think that's what struck me about this entire story is like, as we kind of move through this history, beginning with these, you know, with the labor strikes and through, I mean, we didn't really talk about kind of the development of East St. Louis and the Great Migration, which is like a part of that story we probably don't have time for, but um, was home to a brutal fucking massacre. Um, I think it's 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, where still it's like unknown how how many uh, uh, black residents were killed. I mean, it's just it's a complete and total. Uh, I mean, you could call it a pogrom, probably if you wanted. But um, you know, and then through the civil rights era and into the seventies, and then now, you know, or 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 even most recently, you know, with the Ferguson protests, that there's this very. I mean. You know, I really am not trying to be on the nose, but like the black, white, the black and white of all of these issues is so stark. Like you say, it's like very everything is just so mask off. Yeah. You know, and again, not to be too on the nose, even when there's the veil up. I mean, it's like right. It, it, it's it's a just a fascinating, um, like you know, the story of the veil prophet is such a fascinating conduit into this history of, you know, the, you know, post-civil rights, you know, the failure of reconstruction into um, this, the backlash of the Klan and the new developments of the Mm -hmm. Klan leading into, um, you know, still living in the, in the, uh, you know, still living in mass segregation, dealing with that through the 20th century. I mean, it's just, it's such a, um, it's such an incredible window into all this history. Yeah, I mean, I I wish we, at some point, there's so many things to talk about also about the black community in St. Louis and mm. how, you know, the pogrom that you just mentioned really did shape the rest of the city and Ferguson because right. the pogrom sent a lot of black migrants fleeing the massacre on the east side over the bridges and into the city where they settled in you know, the slum areas near the wharf or the black neighborhoods around uh, downtown. And throughout the years, those neighborhoods have been demolished to build the arch. And they've been demolished like Mill Creek just by executive veto to do urban Wait, they demolished the whole neighborhood to build the fucking arch? Oh, yeah. I mean, the most historic part of St. Louis is on the wharf in the riverfront. Uh-huh. And they cleared the whole place and built uh, our parabola. Jesus. I mean, they had urban... I mean, they called it... They did it here, too. They called it urban renewal and just built these... Exactly. ...horrible fucking buildings down yeah. in Fillmore. But, uh, Along with the interstate highways. That was the way to get it, get yeah. the interstate highways built. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, as that's happening, all of these black neighborhoods are evicted and pushed north into Ferguson, into these, you know, 
at the height of it, the North St. Louis was a really beautiful place to live if you're a black migrant in, let's say, the middle of the century, because you could work and go to school there and become a doctor there, all within black institutions. Mm -hmm. It's just when that, you know, when the capital flight happened and when factories moved overseas or new ones only got built on the white side of town, that parallel economy for black people fell completely apart. And we have what we have now. And that's not even to mention Pruitt-Igo or the failed housing projects. The Pruitt-Igo myth is a great documentary about that, and it's free right now online. Mm. Okay, I'll check that out. It's a very good one. I mean, to bring it all back, I guess what to say is that I'm sure you were not surprised at all by the McCloskey photos <laughs> that came out. No, not really. I mean, I, it was amazing how... Uh, it's weird when you know, like your local thing becomes yeah. the center, becomes of the like main a national... character of the internet. That's how I felt when I saw The Rock. Welcome to The Rock. Oh, God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. I mean, especially such poetic-looking photos, you know? Yeah, the I mean. mustard stain. The Brooks Brothers shirt on the tubby belly. Got her finger no on a shoes. trigger for like 20 minutes. Just mm-hmm. streaming private property. You could just Jesus. see it coming out of her mouth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the, the the house itself and the fact that they paid for it as, uh, what kind of attorneys are they? Personal injury lawyers. Classic. By the way. That, that also seems like perfectly poetic for this this development we talked about with the Veil vale Prophet, where it's like, they're not even CEOs of a fucking huge corporation. They're local personal injury attorneys, which if you want to talk about petty bourgeois scum. Oh, I mean, that's like the top, that's the top of the heap there. It's pretty bad. I think you've also seen like the interior design that they went with and sort of the refurbished, I don't know what you would call that, Midwestern royalty, like, yeah. I don't know, tacky <laughs> shit. It's to have all that money and to be completely scared of the most peaceful like calls for you know local change about how we spend the money as a city and to just get out on your lawn with a gun and just be terrified with a mustard stain on your shirt that is that st louis baby (laughs) we love it well to close us out here you were you're actually you're writing a book about the veil prophet right yeah, I have a. I wrote a novel about it, and uh, it's it's locked and loaded, but it's not uh, not published. I'm still looking for a publisher and agents. Um, but yeah, that's sort of all of this research was uh, in service to that. And the book isn't really nonfiction. It's much more of a it's an artsy fartsy novel, you know. I love an artsy fartsy novel. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, jo- joining us, Jevin. Doi dot the Oh, for Christ's sake! <laughs> for Christ's sake! God, thank you, Stoining. Fuck, I can never recover from that. Thank you so much for joining us, Devin. Look at that! I mean, I fucking nailed it. Thank you so much for having me on. This was incredible. And uh, if I could plug just one last thing, absolutely, it's- whatever you want. The, the local forces in St. Louis are also fighting against all these guys like Cory Bush, a Justice Democrat who's running for Congress, or uh, Megan Green, who's the STL-DSA-endorsed candidate for uh, Missouri Senate. And then there's also the Expect Us, 
um, protest group who's been organizing all of the protests lately. And you should find those links and like donate to them because they're all amazing and we could use the help uh, in St. Louis. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, and uh, together we will smash the veiled prophet. All right. Fuck yeah. article that came out the other day that was like uh why is architecture sexist because it was like buildings look like dicks <laughs> yeah it was in the guardian of course mm. um counterpoint st louis arch yeah looks like a boob yeah well okay that too or a curvy wife yeah yeah it looks like a hot wife i have a theory that the guardian is a psyop to make women look bad i will say i literally love women Mm. um appreciate that thank you brace no problem uh guardian ladies i say this is your friend your strongest advocate uh you guys gotta shut that shit down yeah yeah it's not i don't think it's doing anyone any favors Mm -mm, mm -mm. it's no it kind of it's kind of making us all look bad (laughs) on that note Mm -hmm. thanks for uh sticking with us yeah Appreciate it. Big thanks. No, I don't know, know where, where we're going with this one. It's the end of the episode, sweetheart. Well, I don't know. Maybe we'll just keep going. You want to keep going? I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, can I do a spell? No, you can't do any magic. Okay, well then, never mind. Let's close this shit out. All right, I'm Liz. My name is Brace, and we are joined by producer Young Chomsky. You see, I was modulating there. And we will see you next time. Bye bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.